Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. By way of brief introduction, I'm Ryan Howard, and I'm a new creative director at Annals of Surgery, taking over from the very talented Karin Chabra. Today is another episode of our Annals of Surgery Journal Club series, and we'll be discussing a new and I think very relevant paper entitled COVID-19 and Racial Disparities, Moving Towards Surgical Equity. We're lucky enough to be joined by the two lead authors of this paper, Dr. Sidra Bonner and Dr. Glenn Wacom. Dr. Bonner is a third-year general surgery resident at the University of Michigan. She completed her undergrad at Cornell University. Her master's in public health concentrated in health policy at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and her medical degree at the University of California, San Francisco. Her academic interests include identifying the social and economic costs of surgical disparities, the role of an individual's neighborhood environment on their surgical outcomes, and segregation in healthcare. Dr. Wacom was raised in Ventura, California by two parents who emigrated from Cameroon, Africa. He attended Princeton University for undergraduate school, where he played football for four years and graduated cum laude with a degree in sociology and a minor in African-American studies. He then attended the University of California, San Francisco for medical school before starting his general surgery residency at the University of Michigan, where he is currently a PGY-5 in his second year of academic development time. He is doing translational trauma research and outcomes work around both transplant and disparities. He plans to pursue a fellowship in transplant after residency. Welcome, everybody. Doctors Bonner and Wacom, congratulations on the publication of such a timely, insightful, and I really think practical and actionable paper. And I want to start right off because it's the focus of your paper by asking how and why uh, do you think COVID-19 has highlighted racial disparities in healthcare? Yeah, thanks. Uh, I'll start. Uh, thanks for having us, Ryan. Um, to answer your question, I, you know, I think COVID-19 has highlighted stuff that we knew all along. You know, it disproportionately affects people of color in low-income areas because those are people with decreased access to healthcare. And also those are people who primarily work in what we call essential worker jobs who can't self-quarantine, uh, which is a luxury or work from home. And then also a lot of the people, their method and mode of transportation or work is public transportation, which again, it can't really be quarantined off. And so all those things, I think, just serve to create a perfect storm to really exacerbate underlying problems that already existed. I think what makes it interesting is the reaction of the public to sort of these issues now, uh, which is very different than what it's been for the last, you know, 20, 30 years when the same exact issues have existed. Um, and so I think that's, that's really what, to me, is the difference about COVID-19 um, than the period of time before. And what do you, you mentioned the reaction of the public. What do you think has changed to um, kind of lead to all this um, upswell um, and speaking out that we've seen? 
You know, that's a good question. It's hard to know. I've, I've thought about this a lot because, you know, even with the social justice things that have, you know, we wrote this paper before all this came out, which is sort of unfortunate. I mean, I think Sidra would agree. We'd love to at least mention a part of that on this. Uh, but, you, you know, I don't actually have a great answer for you, Ryan. I think part of it must be the fact that unemployment's so high uh, and then people are like quarantined at home and they're upset and they're angry about a lot of different things. And so like, this is a hop on issue that is, uh, easy for people to rally around. I think, you know, that's just my idea, but I, I don't know. I don't know if Sidra has any thoughts. Yeah. I mean, I, I totally agree with what you're saying, Glenn. I think, you know, when it comes to specifically the aspects of healthcare um, and healthcare delivery as it relates to patients with COVID-19, I think the first thing is like who has access to testing. There's been really great studies that have come out in terms of disproportional access to testing that is located in richer areas, predominantly white areas in the country. And then so it's harder to get testing. Then you think to yourself, where do Black, Latinx, Native Americans typically get their health care and typically those are in healthcare systems that oftentimes are under resourced safety net hospitals. Um, you know, healthcare segregation is a huge thing in the country in terms of 5% of hospitals provide care to nearly 50% of African-American patients. And so we really have to think about what are the quality or what is the quality of the healthcare systems that are providing care to a disproportionate amount of like minority patients with COVID um, and then just thinking about what is the access to like rehabilitation services based off of people's insurance status. So I think there's all of these different, you know, within the healthcare system specifically, not even addressing the social determinants of health. There are all these time points along the point from testing to post uh, rehab, like post discharge care that really are implicated or really impacted by race based off of all of these factors. <laughs> So, Dr. Bonner, you know, you highlight how COVID-19, you both highlight how COVID-19 really acted as a catalyst to make all these racial disparities obvious. You mentioned, you know, things as simple as transportation to a job and then, you know, receiving access to health care. Um, beyond COVID-19 itself, you know, you're both surgeons. Um, how do you see these racial disparities play out in surgical care in general? Yeah, so I can start with that. Thanks for that question, Ryan. So I think when I, I think frameworks are really helpful for thinking about how racial disparities impact surgical care. So the way that I think about this is how do people get the appropriate diagnosis? Once they have that diagnosis, what's their access to the appropriate surgery? Do they receive that surgery in a timely manner? And then once they do receive the surgery, what is their kind of post-operative care? What is their post-discharge care look like? And I think if you look at all of those points along the trajectory of what it takes to fix some sort of diagnosis, you see racial disparities at each one of those points and the root cause of disparities for each of those things are different, right? So when we think about diagnosis, that might be related to transportation, referral networks from a primary care doctor to a specialist. In terms of access to appropriate surgery, it might be whether or not you have insurance to cover that surgery. In terms of receipt of that sur appropriate surgery, it might be, do you get your healthcare in a high volume center that does a ton of Whipple's for pancreatic cancer, or are you less likely to receive that care? So I think for surgery, um, the implications are incredibly wide and 
um, impact our patients along the entire trajectory of their care. Yeah, and you know, I made it a general policy not to ever answer a question after Sidra. Uh, but <laughs> in general, the only thing I would add is um, post-op care too is a big part of it. It is like you know who has access or the ability to do their rehabilitation. There's a lot of push for a lot of these people, minorities, to get back to work faster. So who has the luxury of taking the time off work to really recover? and come to all their post-op visits. And so I think that also plays in a role when you, when you are looking at outcomes after surgery, um, you know, cancer, who gets adjuvant therapy for their cancer and things like that. And so those are also aspects that you have to think about when you're looking at surgical care. And then the last thing I'll say is, I mean, even as surgery residents in our limited time doing this, we also know how much of a, art surgical decision making is. So there's, you know, there's hard and fast indications when people have cancer or it's emergency surgery, but there's a lot of things where, you know, the discretion of who gets offered an operation is left up to surgeons. And, and you know, for various reasons, they can decline comorbidities. They think patients can have poor uh, compliance to post-op regimens and the, the, that, so on and so forth. And I think that also is harder to calculate and study and measure, but, you know, that definitely plays a role in some of um, these things when we talk about disproportionate outcomes in surgical care. Yeah, you know, I think one of the most shocking um, statistics you reference in your paper is that in a survey of surgeons, only a third of the surgeons thought that racial disparities even existed in healthcare, and only 4% reported witnessing disparities in their own practice. And you're saying, you know, already as a resident, you've seen this stuff affect patients that you take care of. Um, why do you think this is something that's been so hard to recognize if these numbers, you know, are telling us what they're telling us? And what do you think we can do to do a better job at recognizing racial disparities in sur surgical care? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, so the 4% number didn't really surprise me as much. Um, the 30% number was pretty shocking. And, I, you know, I'll sort of try to explain like in my mind, it's sort of like if you were to ask polling a group of surgeons, like the first question would be like, do you think missed interotomies oh. exist, right? And the missed interotomy is a big, um, those would be two kind of things. And so like, it doesn't surprise me that people would be like, oh, like missed interotomies aren't a part of my practice. But it does surprise me that like only 37% would be like, oh, look, this thing exists. I mean, I think surgery, surgical disparities um, has been like a long known thing. And I mean, maybe it is a emblematic of the times of when we went to med school versus some of these older surgeons. Cause I mean, I think it was, I mean, UCSF too, where I went, like put an emphasis on this. And so I might have a skewed perspective, but you know, I thought this was just something that everyone was aware of. Um, I, that's like, so that's my general gestalt on it. And I do think, and I'll let, you know, people who do health services research, like the two of you more talk about this, but I think it's also in the way we do our research. Uh, we often like control for race in a lot of these things. And I think that, you know, sometimes, and as you guys know way better than me, is sometimes perfectly appropriate, but other times it's like 
is it appropriate? And I think it's one of those things that just sort of gets thrown in the formula on like, yes, we control for age, gender, race, comorbidities and like sort of don't really think is like should we actually be controlling for race because i think then this stuff would sort of highlight more and more yeah i totally echo everything that one just said so i i think that the answer to this question is very multifactorial i definitely think that the component of medical education is a huge part when we think about how much medical education has changed on the undergraduate medical education level around talking about social determinants of health and health disparities. Um, I think probably we're maybe the first generation of doctors to have that be a part of our curriculum in terms of a more public health health policy focus. I think also a part of the 30% number is like, who are your patients? You know, like if you're, if you're a surgeon and your patients are disproportionately one demographic, it may, um, you know, it may, be a blind spot of yours to know that there are other kind of racial demographics that don't receive certain kinds of care if you've only ever practiced in certain clinical settings, whether that's academic or a county hospital. I think that those things have huge implications in terms of your understanding broadly of like population health of surgical patients. Um, but I do think that the, the discordance between the 37% and the 4%, we kind of allude to this in the papers, I think you know, everyone, even if you do think that these things exist, I think it's really hard for us to all admit that like we are in these systems that provide um, desperate care to patients because we all go into this field wanting to provide excellent care for all of our patients. Um, and I think it's really hard for us to admit that that's just really not the reality. Um, and I think that's, you know, getting to why it's hard for us to, we have to first accept that fact to fix it. And until we do that, really nothing can change. Yeah, right. Just because like the next question, if you say surgical disparities exist in your practice, is what are you doing about it? And then that becomes real uncomfortable because, um, you know, then you have to have an answer for that. Um, and so that's why I think the 4% is sad, but wasn't as surprising to, to me because like then you have to sort of reflect on what role you sort of play in the system. And like, have you passively just like let these things that you know exist go by? And which we all do in a certain sense. So like, you know, it shouldn't be, it's not putting a blame on any particular person. Like we are all part of the system we all know exists. And, you know, very few of us actively go about trying to change it. And so I think though, and I don't, we'll probably get to this later, but that was part of it that this has to be like a system-wide change and like mentality shift on these issues in order to fix it. Yeah, so Dr. Wacom, that's the perfect kind of segue into my next question. You know, the title of your paper uses this notion of moving towards surgical equity. And I think what's so um, nice about your paper is that it doesn't just, you know, identify these big problems um, in surgical care, but you, you really offer up some actionable steps um, to move towards surgical equity, like you say. You know, can you discuss maybe um, one or two or however many you want of those steps and how you see them kind of unfolding um, at, you know, the departmental level or maybe the individual level or maybe even the statewide or national level? Yeah, you know, I, so I'll just touch on one aspect that I think that touches on all of them. I think the first is data collection and reporting of it. Like, you know, if it would take me maybe 10 minutes 
to figure out how many surgeries that I've been a part of have had surgical site infection. It's like very easy to report or a UTI. Like it is, would be very difficult for me to figure out the differential outcomes of my minority patients. It's just not housed or that report is not run frequently enough. It was not that I, at least to the point of my knowledge. And I think that's part of the problem is that if it's not something that's standardly analyzed and reported and looked at, like no one really pays attention to it. And I think that is the first sort of easy, well, it's not, I don't know, easy is the right word, but simple thing that we could do is make it a point of emphasis to have this data reported and to see what it is at the individual level, at institutional levels, and then as like at collaborative levels. And we like know like this is what works. It's the surgical personality. If you tell a single surgeon, you know, they, their anastomotic leak rate is higher than their peers, then they're going to actively think of ways to do it. If you tell an institution that their anastomotic leak rate is higher than their peer institutions, then they're going to create all kinds of things to stop it. And then at, at a collaborative level, if the major insurance company incentivizes having lower leak rates, then everyone is going to go find ways to lower their leak rates. And like, if you just apply that same sort of formula to disparities, I mean, I think people would pay attention and it's incentivized and they work to fix it. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the, what Glenn is getting at is like, we already have so many structures in place in surgical departments across the country around the key tenets of quality and safety. And so equity fits very nicely into that same kind of mentality of like continuous improvement that is so key to being a surgeon. Um, You know, data collection, you know, we know that there's a problem. There's so many studies that have delineated disparities across every single surgical subspecialty. And so the key for the data collection is not so much to say that these disparities exist, but like Glenn is saying, is to monitor interventions that we can then do to see how they mitigate disparities. Um, I think, you know, there's no, or I personally don't know, maybe you all know some examples of departments that do this. I think the concept of voluntary data collection is you know, I think some places are probably more interested or willing to do that. But I think to your point, Ryan, around like state and federal um, policy options, you know, every three years, all nonprofit hospitals have to do a community health needs assessment under the Affordable Care Act. And I think that there are ways that the federal government could use that to make hospitals broadly report about disparities. And I think like state governments honestly could probably think about really innovative ways to make hospitals do that if they are not able to do it voluntarily. Um, because, you know, also there's a disproportionate amount of resources available to certain healthcare systems, you know, academic medical systems versus private healthcare system versus public. And so how do we level that field as well? And I don't, you know, I think that's a broader question, but I definitely think it it starts with data collection in terms of understanding what your patient population looks like and what are their outcomes. You know, that's a, I mean, such a powerful point. I think surgeons have done such a good job at taking up, you know, using metrics here and there to improve quality um, continuously in surgical care. 
And you mentioned that there are some federal incentives, um, you know, like community outreach and community health care. Um, but a lot of that stuff can get slowed down just in the policy battles at the federal and even the state level. One of the things in your paper you even have under the surgical department as a potential intervention is implementing this data collection and monitoring system and, system and looking at outcomes. And sometimes change, even at the single hospital or single department level, um, can be what actually just gets the work done and achieves change. Do you see that as something a hospital could achieve just by using electronic medical record data collection? And I guess, what would that look like? Um, Because I think there's going to be some hospitals who stand to make a really big impact by implementing the stuff you're talking about. Yeah, I think that, you know, doing this, I think doing it on a a department-wide level is important. I actually think it's really critical to think about divisions, right? So when we think about a hepatobiliary service versus a transplant service versus a non-trauma emergency service, each of those patient populations based off of their diagnoses is slightly different, right? Like what's nece- what is needed medically for treatment of their conditions is different. So I actually think that division should look at specific indicators. So if you're in an MIS bariatrics like team and department or division, you should think to yourself, all right, how can we address racial disparities in terms of access to bariatric surgery in the state of Michigan? Um, How can we think about potential complications um, and access to food and nutrition post-bariatric surgery? That is very different from the question of how do we think about neoadjuvant treatment for our breast cancer patients. So I do think that division specifically could probably think about like three or five, you know, three to five important metrics that are related to their patient population um, and really collect data and do rigorous evaluation of interventions um, targeted at their specific patient populations. Yeah, and I think that's definitely the first step. And I think, too, that spurs when you find a problem and actionable, like then because healthcare is driven by monetary concerns, like I think the next step is sort of trying to find a way to to prove that this stuff is beneficial to the patients for sure, but it's also beneficial to the health system as a whole like yeah, we could save money if we just work on the front end on a lot of these diseases in terms of like pre-operative care or making sure our patients can make it to appointments and if we invest a little bit of money on that end it will save the system as a whole and i think that's sort of how you have to kind of look at a lot of these things and get in order and that's why i'm part of it uh when we talk about system collaboratives like these things need to be incentivized by like insurance companies. And that, that's like going to be, I think the quickest motivator to getting massive change because part of the problem is if when you start looking under the hood and you find all these problems, like sort of how we were talking about earlier, if you know it's there, then you have the onus to do something about it. And then if that, if the burden of doing something about it isn't financially profitable, then, you know, becomes difficult decisions on like doing it. And so, and like, that sounds like so bad to say, you know, we should just like try to do all these things just because it's the right thing to do. And I think a lot of people want to do it, but at the end of the day, based on how our healthcare system is set up, it's a business. And so, you know, financial arguments help make things move along 
faster than moral arguments. Yeah, I, and I, we've seen examples of that too, even where <clears throat> kind of to get something started, at least a financial incentive for the first six to 12 to 24 months is, you know, what actually gets it done. And then obviously once it's in place, people recognize it as an impactful intervention. Um, kind of taking a turn from things that are uh, more patient facing to things that are more internally facing. You know, you mentioned... Um, Things in your paper like prioritizing workplace diversity, starting a departmental equity um, committee to, you know, really, I guess, you know, for people to kind of actually prioritize in, in hiring or in promotion, promoting diversity and, and combating um, inequity. Have you guys um, seen instances of this or any examples of this that have kind of inspired you or that you were thinking of when you made this kind of as an action step? I mean, I would say, so I think diversity, equity, inclusion is like the buzzword of like the decade or like the buzzwords of the decade. Um, I think that, you know, here at Michigan, we, under the umbrella of the Michigan Promise, there's been really insightful conversations around how do we support all phenotypes of surgeons. Um, I think there's been a lot of success on the undergraduate medical education level at various medical schools across the country in terms of doing a really great job of thinking about how do we think about holistic review of applicants. And that's kind of now moving into um, the graduate medical education space when we think about how do we review applicants to our various residency programs. So I don't think that there's like an ideal model. I think that all of these things are related but separate and have distinct issues. So like the issues of pipeline programs, um, you know, whether you attack that at the medical school level, the residency level, or if you actually go further back and say, you know, we as a department are going to partner with like a local school um, in order to improve exposure to um, the field of medicine for kids who typically don't have that exposure. So I don't think that there's like an ideal model. I think we're all working on what, you know, on what is the, what are the best practices for building truly um, inclusive environments? You know, diversity is just getting people into the door. And I think there are places who have kind of figured out that, you know, and, and have implemented really thoughtful strategies to increase the diversity of their candidate pools but I think the next question, once you do have a great system and have made the systematic changes around diversity, is how do you then talk about equity and inclusion? And that really gets to like, how do you change cervical culture and institutional culture? And I think that is actually even more difficult, you know, as cervical trainees, you know, there was a JAMA paper that came out earlier this year that looked at racial discrimination amongst cervical trainees and something like 71% of black residents, 46% of Asian residents, 25% of Latinx residents reported racial discrimination. And it was even higher when you looked at the combination of race and gender. And so when you see numbers like that, you really have to ask yourself, what are we doing as surgical departments such that every single person who comes to train has you know, the same opportunity to do well? And what are these mitigating strategies that can be put in place knowing that not everyone who comes into the hospital is going to have the same experience. Yeah. All that is exactly what I would have said. <laughs> uh, but two things that like I, I wanted to add, and one thing, I, one really big regret I had about this paper when we put this 
in is also saying these like committees, the diversity, equity, inclusion committees, two things about them. One, people should be compensated for their time, like the same way they're compensated on other major committees. Because I think one that shows a commitment to it. And two, then there's going to be an expectation for return on investment. Like if you are paying someone to be like vice chair or some other thing of diversity, equity, and inclusion, like that's their job and they're getting monetary return, then you're going to be like, well, what are the metrics of that job? The same way like the chair of quality improvement has metrics around his or her job. I mean, I'm assuming I'm not in any of those positions, but I, I can imagine that like that, that there is like a sort of expectation that they're going to do something about it. And I think that really helps. So that that's like the, like the most important thing I think about these things. And then two, I also think there needs to be diversity in the people who are responsible for the diversity, equity, inclusion efforts, like too often on these committees and groups, it's only the people of color who are like sort of asked to do it and are responsible for it. And I think that really does a huge disservice because when we say diversity is valuable, it's in every sense of the word. So we need people on these committees and thinking about this problem who are all from different walks of life and who have different perspectives about it. And I think that really will make change happen faster and get more people involved. And then it's not such... Also, it's not a burden on the minority people there who feel sort of obligated to champion this uh, because they find it important, but you know, they also might find their pediatric cancer research important. They also might find their global health research important. Like, and, but then they have these competing interests and like, that's also just not fair. So like, I think that's the burden of that. And burden isn't like, it sort of has a negative connotation, which I don't love, but the responsibility of that, these things need to be spread around by everyone. And I think that's a big important thing that when people are doing this, they sort of have to think about as well. Yeah, I think that's a, a really powerful point. Um, this notion that we'll come up with all these new initiatives, but then we'll just foist them on the people who may be most vulnerable to the problems we're trying to address in the first place. And they can really become um, more burdens than opportunities sometimes. That kind of gets at this idea of allyship that has been getting discussed a lot, especially on social media, uh, in surgery specifically in the last couple months. Um, do you do you two have thoughts on you know effective allyship in this arena um, and what that would look like? Yeah, I mean, I think Glenn and I talk a lot about the need for difficult conversations and like spaces for people to be able to share their full experience. And I think that is really reflective of the culture you have in a department. If people don't feel safe that they can bring up concerns. Um, as it specifically re- relates to issues of race, whether that's in terms of how a patient was treated, how a medical student on your team might be treated, how you yourself as a trainee or a faculty member might be treated, um, you know, nothing's going to change. So I think the first thing is, what is the culture and how do we create these spaces such that we can share our stories? You know, I think a lot of conversations and town halls that have been had in the last month. I think one of the most powerful things has been that people you work with every day, you had no idea what their lived experience was. And I think that speaks volume because I'm a huge believer that like change comes from like data, but also personal anecdotes um, and like people having some sort of personal connection. And so if you can look 
and listen and hear someone's personal story about a patient or themselves, I think that is incredibly powerful. I think from a point of allyship, you know, if we look at who makes up a majority of leaders in academic surgical departments, there's a huge opportunity for allyship. You know, there's, there's never been a Black woman that has been a chair of surgery in the United States. Um, and there are relatively few African-American men. And so the potential for allyship is massive right now. And so the question becomes, how do we give power resources to individuals who are interested in these issues? And then how do those people in positions of power really leverage their positions um, to center conversations and institutional resources to actually affect change and not have it be something that's just for the year of 2020, but like something that is like, this is a part of our ecosystem as a department. And we talk about this all the time and do stuff, you know, and measure it. That's great. Um, you know, I'll kind of um, get to, you know, close out the, the uh, interview by, you know, kind of asking in your position as trainees, um, you know, so in your paper, you really talk about COVID specifically and, and healthcare disparity. Um, but, you know, recent events that we're all painfully aware of, the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and others really make it painfully clear that systemic racism is um, still a massive problem, and it affects patients, it affects providers at every level. Um, do you see these events as affecting trainees in specific ways? And I guess how do you see your role as trainees both in how these effect, events have had an effect on you and how this huge issue has an effect and the role in tra that trainees have in maybe addressing these um, that are unique to their position as a, as a surgical resident? Man, just really ending the, the thing on the hardest question. <laughs> I, uh, that's the, it's a challenging question. So it, it's so hard to me when I think about this, it, it sort of seems so separate from my role as a trainee um, or even in some, a, a little bit, even as a doctor, I find this, it, these issues so personal. Um, and, uh, you know, I think some of it's skewed by the fact that like, you know, I've also had like a recent, like a daughter. And, and so some of this stuff just, it, to me, the responsibility of like making change, talking to people and getting people to really uh, see these issues and address them just has to be of like, this is the world uh, like my child has to grow up in and that I, I live in. And it, it feels that like now in my state, like I think I have like enough education, sort of enough um, uh, uh, political power is not the right word, but like sort of like status as like a surgeon or as a doctor that like can really make an impact because like when you talk, people listen, like you have a certain amount of cachet, whether it's earned or not, most of the time it's not earned, but like based on what you've done. And so this is sort of this opportunity, like sort of spurred into me to like, to really be intentional about how I choose to talk about it, what we choose to write about in order to spur further conversation. And I think that, that in a sense, you know, drove this paper and that was before some of the social justice stuff happened, but like, that was what it was like, this is happening. It's a real problem. And like, Hey, we have a platform now that we're 
surgery residents or surgeons that if we write about it, people like the annals of surgery will like listen and publish it. And that sort of can be expounded out like to all areas of culture. Like, you know, like when you go protest and like you protest and you post it and it's like, as a physician, like this affects me, this affects my family, this affects my patients. Like it means a little bit different than people who aren't a physician. And so if you take that aspect of it, that like you now have a power of being a doctor that people listen uh, and then how you want to use that voice really matters. And I think that that's, that's how I think about the problem. Yeah. I think that's, super powerful to think about the privilege that we all have. Privilege. That's that's what I was looking for. Privilege. (laughs) We all have. So we do. I mean, doctors have so much social capital um, and to be able to leverage those positions to like make voices that maybe are typically unheard, heard um, to speak powerfully about race and racism being like a public health issue that we as a, profession now have decades of research supporting you know i don't it's just not controversial i mean so i would say yes everything glenn says i think in terms of like me personally and like how this affects trainees i don't think we can underestimate like the mental health effects of this um you know i think for a lot of trainees when significant things happen in society around race it has a profound impact on their you know, feelings of safety, feelings of like inclusion in the workspace and has an impact on potential like productivity. And I would say like definitely um, in the like couple of weeks following the murders of George Floyd and a lot of protests around like Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor. I think that was true for a lot of my friends here and also just like nationally as we were all kind of just dealing with the emotions Um, But I do think that like trainees have a huge um, role in shaping this healthcare system. You know, the reality, and we get to this at the end of our paper, like COVID-19 has totally upended our healthcare system. And in many ways, it's upended like huge parts of society. And it's going to require us to think really thoughtfully about how do we create a more equitable and just um, healthcare system. And I think we are like really, like I said earlier, the first generation to have so much like education and training around these issues so that we are perfectly positioned to like fix it, not just say that these things exist, but we now are like training a new generation of physicians who've learned about these things, who have studied it and now like have the passion and expertise actually to fix it. Um, so I'm, I personally that is what gives me hope even on days where things are, things seem very difficult is just looking around, you know, on social media, knowing that, you know, one of the things that I've recently been thinking about is like this conversation probably could not have happened in any other generation of surgeons, right? Like a lot historically, potentially minority surgeons maybe felt pressure to keep quiet because they felt like if they said something, it would have implications for their careers we weren't having conversations with allyship. And so I think that that progress um, is a huge, is like hugely important for the foundation that's going to be necessary to build a better healthcare system and a better way to deliver surgical care to our patients going forward. But yeah. And I, and I think that that whole thing just makes highlights the point that ignorance is no longer an acceptable excuse, I think, now with, like, this generation of surgeons. And then I also think, though, 
to like 20 years from now, I guess when we're like looking back, like if things haven't gotten better, then it's like a huge, huge failure on our part. It's like no longer like, Oh, it's a different time. It's a different generation. Like there's like, there's too much out there on this and there's people are too smart and have solved very difficult problems that to, to feel like that this is some insurmountable problem is like no longer an acceptable kind of thought. And so I am hopeful. I am very hopeful, but I, it also comes with like a, a definite responsibility, I think, because, um, you know, we, we all, we all should be very upset with the way things are and we should all feel very like empowered and feel personal responsibility each and every one of us in a little way in our own practices that we, we can address an issue. Well, I think what you two have done is create a really incredible sense of urgency that, you know, there is hope that things will change, but the the work has got to get done and it's got to start with, you know, surgeons at all levels, but especially this next generation of, of surgeons coming up as trainees. Um, I, I think that's a good note to end on. Doctors Bonner and uh, Wacom, I really, really appreciate your time. Thank you for such an engaging discussion. And I, I'm really looking forward to seeing, um, you know, all the incredible work that, that you're going to do in coming years. Thanks so much, Dr. Howard. Until next time, dominate the day. Dominate the day.